Welcome to the first episode of the ARC Audio Review. For those of you who don't know, there's a small bookstore in Mölleger. It's tucked away by the Jewish cemetery in the Nürburgring quarter of Copenhagen, and it's called ARC Books. The smart people who volunteer there sometimes have the need to express their thoughts on literature and culture, so they started the ARC Review, an online journal. It's sort of an extension of the bookstore, which is also a space for community and dialogue. Whereas they say, It's a place for making connections and asking critical questions about the not always answerable. A heterotopian space where musings on concepts and conundrums can be shared, and seeds of new thoughts and ideas can take root, grow, and bloom further out into the digital hemisphere. The ARC Audio Review is a further expansion of this space, from the written word to the spoken. I'm your host, Snorra Nalsson, and this month we'll be looking at the concept of defanging, the latest theme on the ARC Review. Defang, verb, with object. Make something harmless or ineffectual. The president had largely defanged the opposition. This is the Oxford Dictionary definition of the word and it has its roots in the practice of removing the fangs from venomous snakes in order to render their bite harmless. But before we dive into the recent articles on the ARC review, I wanted to take some time to talk to you about vampires. You see, the first thing that came to my maybe overly literal mind when I started thinking about defanging was vampires. Vampires have been around for ages, and they have multiple origin stories. The Greeks spoke of Lamia, queen of Libya and one of Zeus's many mistresses. A version of the myth says that Hera, Zeus's wife, stole all of Lamia's children out of jealousy. This caused Lamia to lose her mind from grief and despair, so she started stealing and eating the children of others, and through those acts she turned into a monster. In Hebrew mythology, the first vampire was Lilith, Adam's wife before God made Eve for him. Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles and True Blood support this story, even though the modern vampire really comes from somewhere else. In the Dark Middle Ages, vampires started cropping up in Eastern European folklore. They were undead creatures, returned from the dead because something went wrong with their burials, or they were possessed by evil spirits. They had blood-red faces and bodies bloated from all the blood they had consumed. And dressed in veils, they killed people and animals to feed on their life spirits. Their blood. These myths and others were crystallized in Bram Stoker's Count Dracula. Dracula lived in a castle like Vlad Tepes, Prince of Valachia, infamous for impaling his enemies so much that he garnered an unironic nickname, Vlad the Impaler. Dracula was frightening. He wore a cape, had hairy palms, and a big unibrow. Dracula was sensitive to sunlight and preyed on young women, turning them into vampires who hunted young children, like Lamia. Dracula and the ones before him were soulless creatures to be feared, but they were also seductive. Bram Stoker created the image of the vampire as an affluent and alluring aristocrat, and that impression has stuck. 
but let's not retread how repressed sexuality in the 1800s figured into this equation. But then of course Hollywood came along and ruined everything. Gone were the hairy palms, webbed feet and the bushy unibrows. All that was left were the fancy clothes, pale complexion and of course the fangs. Things quickly started slipping and the horrific elements of the vampire receded in favor of their sexy and seductive side. 1931's Dracula turned Bela Lugosi into a sex symbol and maybe it's something about the biting and the blood sucking being the perfect mix of pain and pleasure. Anyways, in the 1970s Anne Rice started writing her vampire chronicles and the vampires became lost souls struggling with their darkness. What once was evil incarnate became brooding and miserable creatures, despairing over their own loss of humanity. These books are filled top to bottom with homoerotic overtones and they signal the shift in the vampire genre from horror to fantasy. But the 70s weren't all bad when it came to vampires. At least they gave us this. Black the Black Avenger, rising from his tomb to fill the night with horror. Blackula, Dracula's soul brother, deadlier even than he. You know, he is a strange dude. Fast forward to the 90s and 2000s and we have Buffy, the third wave feminist icon slash vampire slayer, where vampires are both the bad guys and the hot lover boys. Buffy fights vampires at night and makes love to them by day. The most horrifying monsters in Buffy are not vampires, but demons and other creatures. The vampires are mostly seductively evil, Drusilla, seductively gloomy, Angel, or seductively funny, Spike. Always seductive. Which brings me to how the vampire was finally, once and for all, defanned. Whether we love to hate it or hate to love it, the Twilight series cemented vampires as melancholic and depressive glittery fuckboys. You know what I'm talking about. They call themselves vegetarians because they only feed on animals and they stay in high school long past the age of 100. Don't get me started. Vampires are no longer something to be afraid of. They're just moody teenagers in need of sympathy. Vampires aren't the only thing that has been defanged. Some have argued that the modern school system has defanged society. That the school system maintains and reproduces existing power relations and inequalities. And these are the kind of things that make opposition and change even harder to achieve. Our job is then to defang the school system. This reminds me of the old anarchist punk saying, destroy what destroys you. Maybe we need to defang what defangs us. I spoke to Emily, one of the volunteers at ArcBooks and contributor to the Arc Review, about her article on Ivan Illich's de-schooling society. Illich was a radical thinker, a pastor, and a staunch critic of Western culture and society. 
and for years he was a teacher in Latin America. But as he began to examine his role as an educator, he came to the realization that something was wrong with the way modern school systems are structured. Knowledge is swapped out for certificates, active learning for passive consumption, and we are told that this is the way to get ahead in society, the ladder of social mobility. This is Emily. According to Ivan Illich, what makes school bad in today's society is that it is a place of consumption rather than action. That school is an institutionalized place where um, people go to get a specific learning that is learning that is already decided by the state or the society that they live in. He believes that a better way to do it would be to create networks of individuals that can all share whatever they know with each other and that learning should be personal rather than institutionalized. In a way, in a way, education has become, um, or consumption has leaked into education. Um, I mean, universities have been around since the 13 and 1400s before we had any idea of what capitalist consumption meant. But in today's society, you buy into certain degrees or into certain universities or into cer certain institutions to better your CV or to get you know, um, to get the job at the end. You're not actually interested in the education that's going to be provided for you. It's more the name of the place and the degree. And that's what he's critiquing as well. This idea that we can, through life, just continually progress into different institutions and that progression through institutions will also equal an, a progression in learning. That's what he questions. One of the bigger issues with modern schooling is the curriculum that is already fixed and decided upon. The schools provide people with a prepackaged education, but they fail to take the individual into account. There is then no way to know what people could have learned or would have educated themselves in if they had the option to choose for themselves. In order for people to be able to make their own decision about their learning, Illich argues, we need to set up a network of learning instead of institutionalized schools. So the beautiful thing about this book, Deschooling Society, is that it's from the nineteen seven. It's from nineteen seventy, and so it's before the internet. And he has this very beautiful uh, chapter where he envisions how people could start forming these networks of learning, uh, which involves libraries and bulletin boards and, you know, the most meager of computer databases. But basically, he wants everyone to have access to objects of educational purpose, which could be anything from, you know, radios, machines, things that people want to learn about how work. He wants people to have access to people who have skills, such as a mechanic who can show a student how you fix a car. And he wants also uh, people who have skills to have access to sharing those skills. So it's a very sort of skill-based sharing system that he, he um, sets forth in deschooling society. Um, it has some of its flaws, I find, is that it's not, it's not necessarily interested in, in a more spiritual or higher learning. It's very skill-oriented. You know, I would like to learn how to fix my bike. Okay, I find someone who fixes my bike. But what if I want to know more about, you know, critique of society or Heidegger's philosophy? He does take that into account, but it seems like um, a less important thing for him. He has a lot of faith in human nature and the individual. Uh, I mean, basing a educational 
society around learning between individuals and in networks it requires a lot of it requires first of all a lot of uh, um, discipline and and engagement on the side of the individual uh, and secondly also that you have no structures of inequality that start informing this kind of network which he doesn't really address in uh, in the book in this day and age, one might argue that the internet is a perfect place for the kind of network-based skill sharing that Illich advocates. If I want to know how to play the guitar solo from Guns N' Roses' Sweet Child of Mine, or just how to poach an egg, I can easily find videos on YouTube that teach me how to do it. We have Reddit and other internet forums where we can ask questions, debate ideas, and exchange information, not to mention the huge amount of texts, books, and articles we can read for free. Does this not grant us the liberation from traditional schooling that will radically alter the consumer society Illich is so against? Well, I think that, I mean, reading de-schooling society is quite fun now, looking at how we work with the internet and knowing the stuff that Illich didn't know when he was writing the book. But it's very obvious that the internet has not answered any of Illich's questions, despite being the platform for all of the things that he wishes could be. Um, I think he would say that the reason the internet has failed in many ways of producing an equal society is that we still rely on a consumer society where the school is also a place of consumption. And he believes that all societal change is produced in the school, so to speak. So as long as we don't reform the school, we will not reform any other part of society. Um, or rather, he would not say reform, he would say radically alter the way that we teach and school and learn. Um, so the internet instead becomes this place where we reproduce our structural inequalities, we reproduce the kind of consumer mechanisms that we have. And he knows he has a very good point about technology in the book, where he says, technology exists that could support these networks, but the reason that it is not supported is that there's not an elite that benefits from administering it. So already there he sees how technology and power align. And that's what we're seeing with the internet and why it's not solving the kind of problems that he's posing. What I think his book in relation to our theme of defanging is that I think we experience in society many people who want to reform the school system or who want to make it more accessible to certain groups of people. What he's saying is we don't want to reform the school system. We want to eradicate the school system, which is a hugely uh, a radical idea uh, in a society like ours, where we at least believe that the school must be the place of equalizing and social mobility, the only place perhaps that we have left. Um, and he says that all the critique or all the reforming talk is basically a way of defanging a more general critique of institutionalization, of consumer society, of late capitalism. On and on and on. Illich's dream has not yet been realized. At least not to the extent that he thought was necessary. And maybe they never will be, but that's not to say that his ideas haven't informed new ways of approaching education and learning. In small pockets around the world, Illich's ideas are still alive, being put into practice. Take for example the Lunka school in Iceland, a tiny experimental art school commune, work of art, something. The Lunga School is the small art school up on the east coast of Iceland. And uh, the three people that run it and started it were inspired by Ivan Illich. 
um, in the sense that they agree with his idea of not having a specific curriculum. They believe that having a curriculum and having learning goals will hinder the individual in learning what that individual is actually supposed to learn. Um, so their whole the whole school is structured um, with workshops, but it's very, very much up to the individual what they want to do in that workshop and how they want to go about being part of the school. Uh, and in that way, it creates this opening where even though I was there and I went through the same workshops as, as all the other 15 people there, and we experienced sort of the same moving through time in the same place, we all got something completely different out of each, out of the, the school. And in the end, we all got out of it what we needed to get out of it. We learned what we needed to learn, but it was different from person to person. I think the Lunga school was such a necessary place for me at the time that I was there because I had just been to university in London and I think I was stunned and slightly um, taken aback by the feeling of just being part of this machine of of profit, which was this university. Um, and I needed to go someplace that wasn't posing as an educational institution, but was actually serious about teaching people things and um and the f the difference between the two i mean of course they're completely different institutions one is a very prestigious well-known standard university and the other is this tiny communal anarchistic art school in iceland but i learned i learned both personal and co social and creative things at Lunga that were not would not be possible in other places that are only possible in that place because they create an institution that is completely open it's more of a platform than it is a school they create a space and a time for you to learn but what you learn there is up to you so what you put in you get out perhaps and uh, yeah at London it was what you put in is the money and what you get out is the degree on your CV so even if society has not been de-schooled and the school system has not been defanged, Illich's ideas continue to be tested, tried out, and developed in unique and interesting ways. And maybe in the end, that's all that can be hoped for. I would say that I think there are some problems with his ideas. I think they are difficult to put into life on a larger scale. And I also think they don't take into account a lot of other a lot of structural inequalities that he doesn't address but i think it's such an inspirational read because it it looks at society completely differently than i think a lot of other things that i have read for example and it also makes you it at least has inspired me to try to experiment with different ways of learning through other people and with other people so recommendation from here <laughs> In any case, the book is a good read and it contains just the right blend of optimism and pessimism. Yeah, it's both. It's saying that our society is shit, but that we can do something about it. <laughs> society is shit, but we can do something about it. 
Before we continue with this program, I want to draw your attention to the Kickstarter campaign our friends at Atlas Magazine are running. Atlas Magazine is published online at atlasmag.dk and in print once in a while. They cover politics, culture, and society, and they publish long-form journalism that focuses on the important things rather than just the most recent ones. Atlas is run by independent journalists, and in the time of clickbaits and lists of barely but still a bit funny quotes from How I Met Your Mother, they need your support in order to survive. They're looking to raise 250,000 Danish kroner in order to keep their magazine running and start new projects. With a campaign ending in three days, every donation counts. The rewards include movie tickets, books, workshops, and lectures. And if you pledge 8,000 kroner, you get all the books they've published, a subscription to their literary supplement, a signed copy of Susan Brueger's essay Danelse, de Ny Utopie, and a grenade fragment from World War II found by one of their reporters on a trip to Belgium. How's that for a reward? The link to the campaign is in the description, and you can read the magazine at atlasmag.dk. Earlier in this program, I concluded through my very selective reading of vampire history that Twilight ultimately defanged the vampire. I was, however, wrong. The final nail in the coffin was the fanfiction offspring of Twilight, Fifty Shades of Grey, where the vampire isn't even a vampire anymore. The fangs are gone and capitalistic entrepreneurship takes their place. Which brings me to my tenuous hypothesis that vampires and capitalism are inextricably linked to each other. Late capitalism, like vampires, feeds upon the lifeblood of others. As resources become scarcer, we go to greater lengths to extract them from the earth, destroying ecosystems and people's living conditions along the way. And just like the vampire, once it has drained a person of its blood, capital leaves nothing behind but an empty husk. The first piece of evidence I present in favor of my hypothesis is Matt Tybee's article the Great American Bubble Machine. Tybee likens Goldman Sachs to vampire squids, and I quote, The first thing you need to know about Goldman Sachs is that it's everywhere. The world's most powerful investment bank is a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. Vampire squids are disgusting cephalopods. In Latin, they're known as Vampirotuthis infernalis. They can reach about 30 centimeters in length, and they have webbed tentacles forming a cloak on their back. The inside of this cloak is covered in spikes, or fangs if you will. And the vampire squid feeds by ingesting their food, digesting everything edible, and then spitting out the rest. In a similar fashion, investment banks like Goldman Sachs buy companies, suck out of them anything that's of any worth, and leave the rest to decay. Capitalists, like vampires, do not care about people or humanity. The only thing they want is that which benefits them. Blood in one case, money and power in the other. This can only be gained at the expense of other people. 
Evidence number two. The late cultural theorist Mark Fisher wrote in Capitalist Realism that the most Gothic description of capital is also the most accurate. Capital is an abstract parasite, an insatiable vampire and zombie maker, but the living flesh it converts into dead labor is ours, and the zombies it makes are us. Capital and vampires function by the same logic of join us or die. When a vampire sinks its teeth into your body and drinks your blood, two things can happen. Either you die, or you become infected with the virus and turn into a vampire yourself. In some cases, a special ritual must be performed in order to turn a person. They usually have to drink the blood of the vampire to complete the conversion. Modern life in most of the world is infected by the virus of capital. It drains our spirit, our time, and our resources. And in order to live, we must participate. Drink the blood of capital in a ritual of consumption and self-sacrifice. Just try stepping out of the system and either you starve to death or you cease to exist in the eyes of other men. And that's another kind of death. What makes us really human is being with other people, to see them and be seen. And if we leave society to try and make it on our own, we're as good as dead to the world. Vampires might give us the choice of becoming one of them, but capital has made the choice for us. Then how can we escape this situation? It seems completely hopeless. Karl Marx, the critic of capital, was no fan of Hegel and his philosophy. And another guy not that fond of Hegel was Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard, who claimed that Socrates was the ultimate ironist. By taking nothing for granted, he undermined all claims to knowledge made by the people he spoke to, and all the ideas we take for granted or have unreflectively inherited. And this means that we have to start thinking for ourselves. Irony, for Kierkegaard, grants us a privileged, detached, and distanced position from where we can assess knowledge claims, entertain paradoxes, and give the imagination free reign to work its magic, present us with new possibilities and images of how things might be. I guess we could say that uh, irony has been one of like 20th century art's most useful tools for... Um undermining and questioning uh, the absurdities of power structures, especially uh, things like religion or traditional conservatism, where you could always see a system and step outside it and point out how ridiculous it was, how its own internal contradictions needed to bring it down in some way. This is Macon, another ARC volunteer and review contributor. And this is especially the case for uh, postmodern art, which really played with uh, the, the production of images and and uh, and and the falseness apparently of, of the world around us, the commercial world, um, to to show how shallow everything was and and how and how based on on, on very little. Um, it was a way to like tear down the big stories or meta narratives that um, we use to to structure our lives. Um, things like uh, socialism or capitalism are all ways that we can say there's some kind of meaningful structure to our daily activities like you're going to have a glorious workers utopia or you're going to um, 
finally get that big house at the air in the nice neighborhood and your kids won't have to worry because you've provided everything you can for them. But by the end of the Cold War, like with the only narrative left being capitalism, um, this kind of started to fall apart. This is something that David Foster Wallace really paid attention to. He was saying that irony actually became like a part of the operation of capitalism itself. Uh, you know, he's quite, he, he had this uh, reference where he'd say about how Burger King could sell you burgers by saying it's fun to break the rules. Like it was playing with the absurdity of a commercial while making you still buy the thing. So for Wallace, the big problem was that everyone knew that they had to take an ironic stance to um, everything around them, to their friends, to their family, to their work, to because if they didn't do that, they left themselves vulnerable to being um, criticized as being overly sentimental or being uh, weak and not realizing the the complex complex realities of everyday life. And and so you know his work was all about like the fact that we can just be playing so many language games all the time with each other to try and win an interaction by proving how distant and ironic we can be from each other um and, and trying to wonder what and he tries to you know he, he wonders what what we could do instead but i mean he doesn't he can't leave irony behind himself like there's a lot of good jokes about about people making bad lifestyle choices in that in infinite jest for example and so we ended up in this space where like kind of irony and capitalism were everywhere. And the idea of anything being meaningful in that world just seemed impossible. But this is where I think like a concept like uh, uh, Mark Fisher's notion of um, capitalist realism can be really helpful because it, the problem is that capitalism seems to be everywhere. But that's not quite the case the idea that capitalism is everywhere is everywhere and that's what capitalist realism helps us deal with it it lets us delineate and give borders to the concept we realize that it's just kind of something we're saying and maybe then we can move beyond it um so mark fisher's concept of capitalist realism um was to speak to the discourse of capitalism capitalism is a very simple mechanism where you have some resources you turn that into some something to sell, and then you have even more of that original resource. The resource is usually money, but it's called capital because it's extra. That operates whether or not you have capitalism. What Mark Fisher identified was that capitalist realism is a discourse that posits that that's the basic level of society. Like, like there, there's no other foundation than that. Um, it was kind of crystallized with the phrase that uh, Margaret Thatcher said in the 80s, that there is no alternative. But what this label does is it allows you to realize that that is just a set of ideas. It's actually another big story that we are telling ourselves about reality. Um, if we have this way of thinking about, about capitalism, we can maybe start to rehabilitate irony, you know, refang it, give it its, its critical potential back. Um, and this is where I find like uh, the work of um, Franco Bifo Barardi really interesting because um, he distinguishes between um, two concepts, irony and cynicism. He says that what Wallace was pointing out wasn't actually irony proper. It was cynicism, which is something that knows there's no truth or um, value to what the power system is telling you. But... Um, still acts to reinforce it still like will criticize it but only in the way where it can be where it can gain more power whereas the ironist really doesn't care about that i guess maybe an example of this 
might be like the way that we decide to approach something like the popularity of Beyonce. Like Lemonade like was a massive, um, massive hit last year. And it's led to like this kind of weird narrative that Beyonce is going to save the world, which is of course ridiculous because she timed it to come out to promote both the company title and her own fashion line. Um, and, you know, it's like Bell Hooks called it capitalist money making at its best. But the thing is, like, if I like keep in that kind of cynical mode, I can't do anything with that. But I really am interested that people think it can save the world. And like an ironist lets me know, like, of course, there's no truth in what's going on. But there is some truth in that feeling because I can I can step outside of either of those kind of systems of thought. And that's the kind of position I think we should try and occupy with irony in the future. So there we have it. Two types of defanging, which roughly fit the schema Rebecca Lund lays out in her article, A Note, Defanging Critiques, Disciplining Dissent, which you can read on the ARC Review. There are, and I quote, Two forms of defanging, although I'm sure there are many more. On the one hand, that which happens when capitalism or neoliberalism co-opts activist critiques, and through that ensures new avenues of exploitation. On the other hand, that which happens in the transformative dialogue between social activism and scholarly knowledge, or when activism becomes disciplined. Irony has fallen prey to the first kind. It becomes a part of the system. Massive conglomerates deal in irony as much as you and I do. They make fun of themselves, pointing out in ads that the only thing they want is your money, and they acknowledge that their products are no better than the competitors, and so on, and so on. In the school system, we find the second kind. According to Illich, school homogenizes students and reproduces existing power relations, blocking change and limiting personalized learning and skill sharing. And in both cases, we must keep on searching for ways to turn the weapons in their hands and fight back. Defang that which defangs us. Well, that's all for now. I'd like to thank Emily and Macon for speaking to me. Check out their articles and all the other ones concerning defanging at arcbooks.com slash arc review. You should also drop by the store on Mölliga 10, the heart of Copenhagen's buzzing literary district. This has been the Arc Audio Review.